Well, good morning. I'm Ted, and I am very excited to be up here, up front in a, a much different role today. I have to say that only a few short years ago, the idea that I would be up here on a Sunday morning and giving the sermon would be more than laughable. But our God is the God of the impossible. And yes, it's true. Today, it's my turn to give Brian a break. Please pardon me if I start inching over towards Quentin's guitar or fidget in ways that are different when I have a guitar to hide behind. About six months ago, my ministry assistant, Joy, who also coordinates the youth worship team and does an excellent job, I might add, was listening to some new music and pointed out a song called Come As You Are by David Crowder. The words of the chorus are these. Lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home, you're not too far. So lay down your hurt, lay down your heart. Come as you are. After doing the song a couple times in November, the idea of laying down our burdens directed me towards a favorite passage from the book of Matthew. And for months now, I have been contemplating Matthew 11, 28 through 30. What do you think Jesus meant when he said the words that Dave just read? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This morning, I'd like us to explore this passage together, which is one of the most beautiful pictures of what it means to be in Christ in all of Scripture, in what some call the great invitation. So if you would, please take out the blank note sheet that is in your hot sheet, and I will be having you write down a few things there this morning. I've been praying that God will show us at least three things today, and I would have you please write these down right now. They'll be up on the screen. Number one, that he would show us how he comes. Number two, that he would show us who we need to come to, and number three, that he would show us what we are coming to, the how, the who, and the what. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the incredible truths, the comforting truths that you have given us in this text. We pray that these words would hit home in hearts all across this room, and radically transform our view of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. After playing music most of my life, God has allowed me to do it as a profession for a long time. It's no secret that for most musicians, making a living at music is no simple task. So well into my 40s, the Lord opened up a career change for me into the alternative middle school here in Brainerd. The Lord used every minute of my eight years here, there, to show me just how little I really knew, how much I really needed him, and in his perfect timing, provided a way for me to come here to this position in 2007. Praise God. That brings me back to the song, Come As You Are. Song titles are important. They set the table of your mind on what a song might be getting us ready to hear. So, 
What comes to your minds when you hear a song title like Come As You Are? I would guess that depending on who you are and the state of your relationship with God, we would get any number of different interpretations on it. We know that God shows no partiality from Romans 2.11. King James says, is no respecter of persons. And we know that God will meet us right where we are at as we pray and seek him. You often hear it said that God loves us unconditionally. And that by unconditional we mean that as our Father and Creator, He has loved us forever, will never not love us, and there are no strings attached to His love. I believe this is true. I also believe that there is more to it than that. It is a case of both and. He both totally loves us and, as He said to the woman caught in adultery in John 8, also expects us to sin no more. The good thing is, if we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we can begin to move towards this as a goal. This is what sanctification is all about. Have you heard the saying, it's direction, not perfection? Yes, God will take us just as we are, and at the same time, he never expects us to stay that way. So as a way to remember this, on a blank sheet down that you have down there already, write sanctification, then direction, not perfection. When we sing songs like Come As You Are or the great hymn we did in the prelude, Just As I Am, I always want to make sure that we are clear on what that means. I know from experience that it is helpful and necessary to explain and remind ourselves often that how we come in our natural state without Christ, is as broken people and is certainly not okay. Does anyone remember the book from the 1960s entitled, I'm Okay, You're Okay? In one of the best-selling self-help books ever, the author Thomas Harris attempts to explain the scientific methods of transactional analysis, or TA. Wikipedia reveals that the book title has been extensively parodied given such titles as, I'm okay, you're not so hot. I'm dysfunctional, you're dysfunctional. I stink, you stink. And shoot out at the, I'm okay, you're okay, corral. More accurate title, especially in a biblical context, would be, I'm not okay, you're not okay, and no one else is either. David lays this out very clearly in Psalm 51 when he writes in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin did my mother conceive me. You understand that this is referring to our state at conception, in sin, and that this is the polar opposite of in Christ. This is not referring to the state of our mothers, though she too would have been in one of these two states, in sin or in Christ, on the day we were conceived. How does that sit with you today as I say that, as you read it from God's Word? Quoting from the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned away, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
And from verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Before June of 2003, as an unbeliever, I often sat in the back of this church listening to the sermon and to the music. And I remember thinking indignantly, how dare they say that I am a sinner? How arrogant, how judgmental and ignorant is it to be a Christian? I wonder if any of you sitting here today have thought that or are perhaps even thinking it right now. Me, a sinner? I know I often thought, sure, the murderer, the child abuser, the thief. There certainly are sinners out there. And yes, back then I would sometimes drink too much, let my eyes and thoughts wander inappropriately or might be not as caring and kind to Mickey as I should be. That's not sin, is it? I was basically a good person, was good to my friends, and most people seemed to like me. When we were first married and living in Alaska, Mickey and I were involved with a group that pursued New Age spirituality. This was characterized by a mishmash of alternative ways of thinking and living with an interest in self-actualization, Eastern religious mysticism, and environmentalism, among other things. Think Age of Aquarius. I know, that's a scary scary thought. A current example of this would be the practices popularized by Oprah Winfrey from the book The Secret. Most have just enough Jesus to give them some legitimacy, but they are anything but new and are simply a repackaging of the same old lie of Satan in the garden when he said in Genesis 3.1, Did God really say? Back then... We would sing the hymn, Amazing Grace, but change the word wretch to sing that saved a soul like me. We were certainly not wretched people. A while back, I remember turning on a Sunday church broadcast from the Crystal Cathedral and was surprised to hear that they also sang soul instead of wretch. In a similar vein, in 2013, the Presbyterian Church removed the song, In Christ Alone, from their new hymnal because the songwriters, Stuart Townend and Keith Getty, refused to allow them to change the line, the wrath of God was satisfied, to a more palatable, the love of God was magnified. And lately, a prominent pastor from the largest church in America openly admits he leaves out teaching on sin and repentance because people don't want to hear about sin today. In our natural state, none of us like to hear how the Bible characterizes us, that we are sinful and in rebellion against God and objects of his coming righteous wrath and judgment. That certainly was the case for me. On one hand, I pictured myself as an enlightened, free thinker with a beautiful wife and kids, family and friends who love me, and a successful, though not always financially viable, music career. On the other hand, and unbeknownst to most, I was quite miserable. Life seemed to lack depth and meaning beyond meeting my immediate needs and caring for my family. My self-styled goodness had left me empty. I often felt hopeless and more than once thought it would be easier to drive my van into a tree and be done with this life. Serious thoughts of my eternal destiny were scarcely considered and were lumped together with the good guys go to heaven, I hope, which is a teaching I had gotten in church growing up. Then something miraculous happened. 
Since my wife and boys were here, I continued to hang around and saw people I knew, some of you here, people who I knew had struggles in their lives, difficult relationships, heartaches and hardships, come together in this room and joyfully worship this Jesus. While I was hearing the word sin occasionally in the sermon or out of the Bible, these Christians, you people, were not condemning me as I expected, but were kind and loving to me. One day after doing some particular thought or act, I remember thinking, that is a sin. The decadent lifestyle I had led most of my life all of a sudden came into view quite differently than I had ever seen it. The denial I had only semi-successfully kept at bay for years was blown away in that moment, and I was able to be honest with myself for perhaps the first time. I am a sinner. It was not long before the day that I allowed myself to also admit how wrong I had been about almost everything, that Jesus was who he said he was, the Christ of God, and I was toast. Unsure and scared to death, mostly of what others would think, but toast nonetheless, I was finally saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. I tell you all this knowing that on any given Sunday in this building, we have a wide spectrum of people whose lives and hearts are all over the map in regards to their belief in God, the nature of truth, and why they happen to be here. Through study and surrender to God, many of us are able to freely admit our corrupt and wretched nature without Christ. And I know that I do not take offense when a sermon, a scripture, or a song reminds, of it, reminds me of it because it gives me a benchmark to measure just how amazing God's grace is. I know that's a long way around explaining a song title, but I want us all to be clear on our human condition, the nature of the burden of sin we naturally carry as a vital starting point for understanding the gospel, what Christ did for us, and this passage from Matthew. So now, please open your Bibles again to the beginning of chapter 11. Teaching in the disciples' home territory of Galilee has never gone very well for Jesus. Now we hear even John the Baptist is questioning him. Look at verses 2 and 3. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Remember, this is the same John who baptized Jesus, saw the Holy Spirit descend on him, and said in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jump ahead to verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Do you know that Jesus performed more miracles in Capernaum than in any other town? And still he pronounces woes on them. In verses 23 and 24 he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Then in verses 25 through 27, he offers a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving to the Father and another bold declaration of his deity, and then entreats his listeners in verse 28 to come to me. 
Verses 28 through 30 are striking in their gentle tone compared to the rest of the chapter. Standing there in front of a crowd where he has just pronounced woes and judgment, the tender personal invitation is quite remarkable. Come, he says, not to a religion, a system of belief, or just another set of impossible rules, but come to a person, one who has shown you his power, his love, and his humanity. Remember a few weeks ago we studied in John 6. Christ says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. To come is the same as to believe, to trust, to the point of submitting to his lordship. In that day, his listeners though they had seen him display his authority and power with their own eyes, were reluctant to follow to the point of repentance and submission. So who is he inviting? All you who are weary and burdened. Of course, all in the immediate context is those listening to him who were daily laboring and heavy laden under the weight of the Old Testament law and the impossible expectations of the Pharisees that no one could measure up to. The crushing burden of more and more laws and the long list of do's and do nots resulted in the constant feeling of guilt and shame. He calls the Pharisees blind guides, hypocrites, and a brood of vipers. These are who he was referring to when he says in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. They were the wise and understanding, and they missed it. Their pride in their traditions and good works blinded them to the truth standing right in front of them. In sharp contrast to the burden of the religious legalism of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, I will give you rest. First use of the word rest in this passage means relief. And he is saying, I will give you relief. I will relieve you of this weight. Let me carry it. And what exactly is he offering to carry for us? While we know that he is there in the middle of many of the trials present in our daily lives, he's talking here about something much, much weightier than that. The rest he is referring to here is first, relief from the full weight of our sin. And second, rest from the full weight of our utter inability to please God on our own. You get that? Relief from the full weight of our sin. And secondly, relief from the full weight of our utter inability to please God on our own. Look at Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And in Isaiah 43, God says, I will not remember your sins. The result of this knowledge for a believer that God will not remember your sins should be awe and worship. Some of our most powerful hymns of praise allow us to proclaim this truth back to God. From the song, It Is Well, we get this lovely lyric. My sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Regarding our absolute inability to pray to please God on our own, 
I found what David Platt had to say on this very helpful. He says, The whole point of Christianity is coming to him and giving up all we have and saying, I can't do it. As a result, we are no longer have to come into this setting, the church gathering on a Sunday morning, and ever think that God is disappointed in us if you have trusted in Christ because God has taken all your sin and all of your ability to please him. He has nailed it to a cross, and what he looks, when he looks at you, he sees you and is not disappointed in you, but he sees you and delights in you, not because of one ounce of your performance this week, but all because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his son. It is not about what we bring to the table. It's about what he brings to the table. We give up all we have to Jesus. We can't do it. The Case for Christ, a book by Lee Strobel, was instrumental in pointing this out to me as I wrestled with coming to faith. Listen to how he puts it. Every other faith system I had studied in my investigation was based on the do plan. In other words, it was necessary for people to do something. For example, use a Tibetan prayer wheel, pay alms, go on pilgrimages, undergo reincarnations, work off karma from past misdeeds, reform their character to try and somehow earn their way back to God. Despite their best efforts, lots of sincere people just wouldn't make it. Christianity is unique. It's based on the done plan. Jesus has done for us on the cross what we cannot do for ourselves. He has paid the death penalty that we deserve for our rebellion and wrongdoing so we can become reconciled with God. Just as a reminder, write this down. The do plan versus the done plan. I wonder if any of us are here today are thinking that God is somehow disappointed with you this week. That some slight, some act, some sin has somehow left you guilty and in God's doghouse. Or flip side of this would be, has some particular act of service or a special prayer and devotion time got you feeling that God is more delighted with you this week? These are easy places to go, but do you see how easy it is to slip into the do plan, slip into a mind and heart set of performing and earning God's favor and forget that it does not matter to God because he is always operating under the done plan? Not that these are bad things. We must remember what we saw before, that even here it is Christ alone who enables us to do anything and any pride or boasting needs to be in him. Heavy stuff, I know, all this sin. Please hang in there. It gets better. So how does the yoke fit into this? Well, it's not this yoke. This is two eggs, one with a bigger yoke than the other. And the bigger yoked one says, I can't date you, we're unequally yoked. I know, I had to do it. Sorry, Mick. <laughs> now, this is the yoke that we were talking about. As Mickey and I discussed how I was going to teach this, we both admitted that the image of a yoke has always been a bit confusing. How could we take his yoke on us? And how could his yoke possibly be easy and his burden light? 
He had taken the weight of all the sin of the entire world for all time and all the wrath of God meant for us unto himself. Have you ever wondered about this? What I found was very cool and totally changed how I viewed it. There are many variations in yoke design, but basically it's a carved wooden contraption that goes around the neck of a beast of burden, attached to a harness to help pull some sort of a load, such as a wagon or a plow. In practice, it is used by the animal's master to help control and direct it in its work. As a metaphor, it is used over 70 times in the Bible to describe submission, mostly in the Old Testament and most often in reference to slaves and bond servants. In the New Testament, we also see it as the yoke of slavery to sin in Galatians 5 or in relationships in the idea of not being unequally yoked with unbelievers from 2 Corinthians 6. So what might Jesus mean when he is telling these people and us to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Three things about this. First, what Jesus is saying here is that we are invited, not forced, to submit to him by leaving the yoke of the law and joining him under his yoke. I found a good description of how this works in the core values of a church from Overland Park, Kansas. Pastor Tom Nelson writes, Here in his great invitation, Jesus refers to a training yoke. How did a training yoke work? The farmer would put two oxen in the yoke side by side. He would put the mature, experienced ox on the larger side of the yoke and the younger, inexperienced ox on the other side. In the yoke, the young ox became an apprentice to the experienced ox. The young ox, used to unbridled selfish pursuits, would want to go off the path when he saw green grass or a refreshing stream of water. Rather than letting the ox do his own thing, the mature ox would gently guide him back on course. When the young ox entered the yoke, he left an old way of life and submitted to a new master that would train him. The young ox would get to know intimately the other ox and learn everything the older one knew. In the course of time, the young ox would become just like the mature ox. The yoke was the means by which training and transformation occurred. Can you relate to the idea of having unbridled selfish pursuits? I certainly can. I had years and years of them. I desperately needed training and transforming and fought against it with all I had. As we sang last week, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice. I can really picture myself as that young ox running from one thing to the next, all the while growing more weary and collecting burdens I did not even know that I had. Again, from the song, O Great God, we sang last week, Then your spirit gave me life and opened up your word to me. As I said earlier, as my weariness grew into a thinly veiled depression, it was as if I looked up one day and this wild young ox, and there was Jesus, and I heard him say, Come to me. And this wild young ox willingly came alongside the mature, experienced ox and submitted my will to his. At the same time, I entered into the most difficult years of my tenure as a teacher. 
I know I sometimes pulled my head out of the yoke and battled in my own strength to the point of weariness, but I now had a place to go with my burdens. And now the largest one, the burden of my sin, was totally gone and nailed to the cross of Christ. Please remember what Jesus is not promising in this passage. He is not promising to remove our burdens, but by coming into his yoke, we can bear them, weak as we are, because of his strength. So how are we to be trained and transformed? Jesus says, learn from me. The word learn here is the same word translated as disciple, the same word used in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen in the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. And then in verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So he is saying, be my disciples, follow, believe, submit, and obey. And why? He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that a hard offer to refuse? Learn from him. Become a disciple of the gentle, humble teacher and find rest. And this word for rest has a different meaning than the relief rest from verse 28. This word means shalom, the rest of peace, the eternal peace for our souls, both in the world to come and in this broken world we now live in. Okay, just a couple more things and we'll be done. As I thought about what I, I could do to illustrate our burden, the story Pilgrim's Progress came to mind. I'd like to show a short video clip of the main character whose name is Christian at a pivotal point in his journey. Christian is a husband and father living in a comfortable life in the city called Destruction. Because of reading God's word, he is suddenly aware that he has this heavy, lumpy, filthy rag-like burden on his back that he cannot get rid of. Due to his reading of the word, he learns of the coming wrath and destruction of all on earth and seems to be the only one who has this big burden thing. So he is compelled to leave everything behind and seek the celestial city. After many trials and lessons on the narrow road, we pick it up there. His burden seemed heavier than ever. He wondered if relief would ever come. But Christian's faith kept him moving forward. He would soon find himself at a place called Salvation.
Pretty simple, but a good illustration. Some of the audio um, disappeared, but I think you could see what he was saying. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If we were to put ourselves in Christian shoes, what does this clip show us? Number one, we wrote these down at the beginning, it shows us how we come. Blinded by our own self-righteousness, destined to carry the burden of that and the sin we were conceived in, we are enemies of God and unable to do anything on our own to save ourselves. But did you hear the strains of amazing grace in the background? Undeserved, incredible grace that saves a wretch like me, like you, and like Christian. Number two, it shows us who we need to come to. We need to come to Jesus the Christ, crucified on a cross, who lived the perfect life we could not and died the death we will not have to if we come to him in faith and trust him with all we are and all we have. And number three, it shows us what we are coming into, into his promise of future rest, eternal peace with him in heaven, and a present reality of divine instruction and help that will enable us to live a fruitful Christian life as we now come under his yoke. What was Christian's response as he knelt at the foot of the cross? Did you see that? Surrender, deep gratitude, Praise, and I would say worship. So I ask, what is your response to this offer of rest and salvation that Jesus is offering? If you are here today and have never trusted Christ as your Savior, and all this talk of sin makes you uncomfortable or worse, please know that I understand how you feel and would urge you to please come talk with me or one of the elders or the prayer ushers at the end of this service. I would ask you to please consider, as Pastor Brian says often, that you take it up with God. Because it's not my opinion, this is not Lakewood's, but a vital truth from God's Word that we cannot avoid. If you are here today and have responded to the great invitation of Jesus, we can praise God that He has drawn you to Himself, and as a child of the King, He has empowered you to come under his yoke of freedom. Now I know that there is probably not a person in this room who does not have some sort of weight, some heavy load that is wearing and tearing you down to some degree. Please know that this passage is not a prescription for what burdens us, and I would never want to minimize any struggle that you are facing. It would be good for us all to remember to avoid paraphrasing this Matthew 11 passage by saying to some hurting soul, just give it to Jesus, he'll carry it. Much better to gently and humbly walk through the valley of the shadow of death together and remember that struggle is a normal part of the Christian life and it is not to be used to measure the size or depth of your faith. Knowing, as the hymn says, that we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, it is good to ask yourself, am I living life mostly yoked to Christ and learning from him and what his word teaches? Or are you yoked to the wisdom of this world and wandering off to the broad road that leads to destruction? 
A practical way to guard against this is for us to maximize our opportunities that we have to hear and interact with the gospel. Every Sunday, you will hear it from this platform in word and in song. For a fruitful Christian walk, regular time in God's word is vital, as well as fellowship and accountability with other believers. Check yourself. Does how you live reflect a transformed life in Christ to the world around you, which is the evidence of true Christian faith? Know that as often as we wander away from the yoke, we can repent of our wanderings and come back to the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Remember the joy on Christian's face as his burden of sin rolled away. Remember the joy of your salvation and have deep gratitude for it all and remember the love that God has for us. Back then, Precious few took Jesus up on his offer to come to him. For us, on this side of the cross, we know the rest of the story. So come as you are and worship Jesus. And let's pray. Lord, I praise you that you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Father, help us to come to you today as your children who know that you love us and that you would please help us to learn from you, to obey you, and to worship you as worthy of all of our praise. Help us to see that you have taken all our sin and all our ability to please you, and we no longer need to do it. It is done. For anyone here who has not yet trusted Christ, Lord, help them to pray this with me. Lord, I know I have sinned against you and cannot do anything to save myself. I believe you came to this earth, died on the cross, were raised from the dead, and now reign at the right hand of the Father. Lord, take my life for your good use and make me your child forever. In the precious, powerful, holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.